Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today I'm joined by cinematographer James Neist. I had him on the show today to talk about his latest project, the highly anticipated series, The Midnight Club, that was created by Mike Flanagan. The series began streaming today on Netflix. Based on the 1994 novel of the same name, as well as other works by Christopher Pike, the premise of the show takes place at a hospice for terminally ill young adults, when eight patients come together every night at midnight to tell each other's stories and make a pact that the next of them to die will give the group a sign from the beyond. Neist, as DP on the series, shot five episodes and has a long history of collaborating with Flanagan, having the Midnight Club mark their fourth time working together. Previously, they've collaborated on the feature film Hush, the Netflix hit series The Haunting of Bly Manor, and Black Mass. I had a great time chatting with James, and I really enjoyed what I've seen of the series so far. Definitely make sure you check out the show on Netflix. I want to thank Bookman's for sponsoring the show today, and want to thank Fort Worth for letting me use the song at the end. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Hey, James. What's up, Chris? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How about yourself? Not too bad. I see the Chucky doll in the background. I'm having cool. nightmares already. Get, get, getting ready for that time of year. So uh, Halloween's a big holiday in my house. Yeah, same here. Like, it's incredible how big it gets. Like, <laughs> And the, the, the catcher for me is storing it all year long. And then like, hey, where are the skeletons? Hey, where are the rats? Where are the bats? I'm like, I don't know. You know, well, this guy hasn't been out uh, since last year. and We just got a, a great game. And so he's frightened of that thing. Does not like Chucky one bit. So I can uh, imagine if I barked yeah. at it and just randomly would come in the office when I have the door open and would just start barking at it for no apparent reason. It's uh, <laughs> it is pretty creepy. In fact, my I have a 14 year old daughter. She was just watching it the other day. And I was like, are you really watching that? I mean, it's pretty dated. Which one was she doing? Uh, Oh uh, gosh, I can't remember. I walked by. It was the 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 most recent one, actually. Okay, uh, the TV show that they're doing. That no, it was one of the films. One of the where there's probably six of them now, isn't there? Or five, something like that. Yeah, yeah. that sounds right. Three, yeah. and then there's the original three, and then there's three. A- no, four afterwards. I guess there's seven. I think. Oh my god! Count the Yeah. Who knew? Who would have guessed? <laughs> I certainly wouldn't have. And. As they went on, they somehow got better. It's it's the to me at least. Um, well, you know, I think I've seen that happen a lot in our genre stuff. Is that once it makes some money, they put more money towards it. You know, it's like uh, it's not so much a one up. I shot a movie called Annabelle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did it for like I don't know. I want to say like ten million or something. And uh, oh my god, I think the the next one was like fifty million was the budget. You know, and um, as soon as they start making money, then they start putting more money into them. You know, right for so. I mean, it's a viable. I viable can't believe product. that film was only, was shot for only ten million dollars. It looked fantastic. I mean, yeah, I, just you're doing period at that kind of scale and everything you were pulling off in that film at that at a very what would be a small budget for a. Uh, studio picture like that that you know yeah it was on three thousand screens yeah it did really well i think it made like 256 million dollars or something like that i'm like where's my check <laughs> doesn't work that way unfortunately <laughs> no no not, not not for dps unfortunately no, i know but you've been involved in some of my favorite genre work of the last 10, 15 years. You've, oh, you're, cool. yeah. So, so stuff that I think um, specifically the stuff you've done with Mike Flanagan falls under this category of, I, I just stopped trying to prejudge his material. Right. Yeah. And I think that probably happened with Hush mm-hmm. where it's just a home invasion movie. Okay. I know what that's going to be. I get that. I've seen that before. It's fine. And then just knocks it out of a part of the park in a way that it shouldn't work the ouija movie should not work the way it does you know taking the haunting uh both those series they're wonderful um yeah I, midnight mass the the boat sequence is probably i think one of the best moments in television of the last 10 years and that says a lot i i to me that was an emmy worthy performance in that in that particular scene kind of got snubbed at the emmys but you know mike is his, he brings a real cerebral approach to it all and um you know i think he he's just super smart and um, pretty creative and and he digs his heels in like he fights for for what he wants you know and like hush we did that for i think it was under a million dollars uh it was very small very intimate it was my first project with him i had done the bye-bye man with his producer trevor um macy and um 
We did that in 18 days in the woods in Alabama with like one set super and Kate um, Siegel, she, Life, she yeah. carried the whole thing. I mean, she did all her own stunts. By the time we were finished, she was black and blue. And But it was a really cool family film, you know, like in terms of the process. Um, you know, it was, it was really tight, small crew, and we had a really good time. We shot all nights. I think the first, there's only one day scene in it. We started that day at like, you know, 6 p.m. and the rest is all nights. And we fought the sun coming up a lot. But it was um it was a really good experience actually and, and it kind of launched Mike. I mean, they started taking him seriously from that from that movie on, especially Netflix. Oh yeah, this and this the Stephen King adaptations that he's done. Again, it's just that, like Gerald's game. If you've read that book, it does you that's an unadaptable book, and yet right. he found a way into the material. He actually yeah. did an amazing job. Doctor Sleep, same kind of thing. I know he's probably not the type that would say it, but I feel like that's one of the rare examples where it's a film that made me appreciate a book more that I did that I didn't really care for in the first place that I was kind of middling on it. And it gave me a new insight to the book that I didn't have before. Yeah. Stephen King's an interesting cat, like um, who, cause he kind of handpicks the directors to, mm-hmm. to um, you know, the movie versions of his books. And um, it's been interesting to see him have other relationship with other directors and how those, you know, like Dr. Sleep didn't do that great at the box office, but I think it was pretty well, pretty, pretty well critically acclaimed. And, um it's it's funny like especially pre- post-covid like what is the formula for for making money you know and i'm constantly blown away by the genre fans and how uh, supportive they are i mean you know both critically and financially and um and it's really it's funny because everyone always talks about oh like this is a new thing horror movies and and, and i've looked back i'm like oh not really they just start calling him that i mean hitchcock i grew up watching you know um um oh my gosh my brain just left me um what was the tv show you know with uh you know uh, twilight zone twilight zone yeah, twilight yeah zone. Those are my, my awesome. six-year-old just started watching it he's interested in it now those would and, be considered genre movies i mean oh for sure those would be considered a genre movie talk about a monster you know it's a monster movie and so now it's funny to hear all these people um talk about oh it's a new thing and it's not really it's just we put a label on it now i, I feel like we're finally past the point where they're calling it elevated horror which is something that always really bothered me. It's just, oh, you're giving it a name to give an excuse for this thing that you like that you've always put on the side. And you've said, no, no, that's kind of, this is exploitative. It's garbage. It's kind of, this is trashy stuff. We don't give, take this seriously. Then if I wanted to start taking this seriously, I had to give it a different name, a different, and it's, no, I mean, it, there's so many different shapes that horror comes in. And really, if you're looking at something like the Baba Duke and you need to give it a different name to be comfortable with it. Okay. But it's still right. just a horror movie at the end of the day. And I mean, look at the literature throughout history, you know, oh, like, of course, I mean, the well, Bible that, that, alone. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. But with midnight mass, this is, again, this is something that is, I feel like it's both at the same time, not for me, but completely for me at the same time where it's just this thing that it's, I'm 46 years old. So this is right. This cultural references of this show are completely (laughs) where I land. Right. Um, But it's something in this kind of, um, are you afraid of dark esque um, storytelling thing that I I never really, that wasn't a show that connected with me when I was a kid, but there's a way in here and connecting that to the importance of storytelling. I know I've only, I got the screeners yesterday. So I've only been able to watch the first two episodes, but it feels like it's built towards this idea of just culturally and the way that we've evolved and how much that is tied to our storytelling and how important that is to the human experience. And I think that's a really smart take on this. Well, that's exactly what, um, so the, the B stories that these kids talked about and, and told in uh, the midnight club, that's exactly how we discussed and approached it was like, what material would these um, young adults draw from in the 1990s to help, you know, explain their stories or, or, or visualize their stories. And a lot of it was just iconic movies from, you know, the eighties and the nineties mostly. And, you know, we referenced a lot of that stuff, um, a little bit in tone and style, um, a lot of it in aspect ratio, surprisingly enough. Um, explain how how so, well, we just kind of wanted to really, um, define some of the inspirations you know like um uh, and in there you start to look at different movies and they all have different aspect ratios mm-hmm. and um some of them are period that's what was the norm uh, with the technology and then some of them were also to like widen the widen the scope of of what you see on the screen so you can 
you know, put scary things in the corners and um, that kind of what you, what you don't see kind of stuff in terms of limiting the aspect ratio. So it was a, it was a conversation. So we had a sign um, and a lot of it too, I think was the pitch to Netflix is they really wanted to know what we were doing. Cause we were all over the map in terms of looks for the um, B stories. And we had to kind of explain like, well, these, this B story was motivated by, you know, um, the potential movie that the, kids would reference in in their story and so then we had to kind of go a little bit deeper with that well that was shot in 185 and that would use a lot of you know saturated colors or desaturated colors whatever the case was for each b story um and so that was a lot of the clerical work um, in prep you know was defining you know what we're looking at in terms of inspiration but i think that you're right in terms of like um you know looking back now on stuff that we just don't necessarily know we were inspired by because it wasn't cognizant but it just sort of seeped in into our um, you know, into our language, if you will, um, just by being exposed to it through osmosis, you know, no, that makes I find myself too, I'm not very good at encyclopedic. Like I, I, I'm not great at referencing, especially actors and things like that, but I find myself oftentimes knowing what somebody's talking about or referencing something that I never knew. I really knew, but I just, it was a life experience that stuck with me deep down in there, you know? And when we talk about that kind of stuff, oh yeah, like in this movie or like in that movie, like let's do a camera move like that or and I think it's fun to pay homage to all those kind of things. Like, you know, there is purists say, oh, you're ripping that off. I'm like, oh, hell yeah. But like everything's been already done. It's how you tweak it, how you apply it, what, you know, parts you cherry pick. It's like, you know, yeah, chefs have been using paprika or salt and pepper forever. But that doesn't mean that, you know, they haven't come up with their own creation using the same ingredients. And that's kind of what we what we do, really. I, I, absolutely. I, I agree 100% with that. And there, there's some references here that feel overt and there's other ones that feel very subtle like um if you when you have heather sitting around a group with a group of kids and they're having a therapy session i mean that feels very much nightmare three to me that that's what that pool mm. is mm-hmm. that there had to be some awareness of it but that's also something that's not distracting that if you've never seen nightmare on elm street uh, elm street three that doesn't matter it's not going to take away from that i think it's just something that the right kind of references like that they are paying sort of dividends to the people who know the thing, but it's not, you're not feeling like you're being left out of something. Yeah. You're not shamed for not knowing it. Exactly. Also funny too, because like I have my 14 year old, they said, and even she's a big stranger things fan. And like some of the songs they'll play and she'll start singing. I'll sing along with her. She'll, how do you know that song, dad? I'm like, oh, that song was when I was in junior high. Like that's a 1980s riff. Like really? And a lot of these things that the new generation isn't really aware of that you know, we use them as references. That's what we grew up with, you know, and, and that's just becomes part of our lexicon, right? It's like, you know, like that's what we just know. And, um, but now it's has skipped a generation. Everything is so secular. And I heard that growing up, but now I get to see it in my house from music to wardrobe to like dance styles, to hairstyles, all these things have come around full circle, probably for the second time. I'm, I'm 53. So it's coming around for oh. the first time I was there. The second time I kind of didn't pay attention. And now that it's in my house, it's the third time, you know, and it's really, I'm like, shit, I should have saved all my bell bottoms. Or, you know. <laughs> oh, there's things that I never thought I would see come back. It just does that when I saw people wearing fanny packs again and the mullets back now and these kinds of things, I'm like, I'm done. I, I, were pretty bad. I, it was like, it was bad the first time around. And yeah. that was something that it's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, whatever it's fine they want to grab onto that it's that's that's great good for them but i'm not getting back on that train again i mean we didn't know any better they should know better you know like somebody <laughs> already told us that that is you know terrible like for me like i go to buy clothes and all the the, the shorts are super short again and i'm yeah, like that was great when i was 19 but uh you know <laughs> yeah, i can't wear those things you know it's and it just but that's all there is out there it's funny they don't very, very we're funny. totally digressing here, but like no, uh, it's fine. I thought, like I wanted to create like a men's line for like men that drink beer and eat ice cream and like you know I want to kind of hide it and and but it's there not you go. <laughs> <laughs> well it's like you know apparently cargo shorts are back again. So who the hell knows at this point? If you just stay exactly who you are, eventually it'll come back around for you. That's the only lesson to that. Make you so, save a lot of money too. Exactly. I know. I mean, just stay I comfortable. Just getting used to skinny jeans, and now it's all back to like the baggy stuff from the night. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I don't think where? I'm getting a pair of Jinkos again. That's not. No, happening. God no. Uh, where Where are you? Where do you live? I'm in Tucson, Arizona. 
Oh, okay, cool. And um, have that has that a COVID thing that you kind of work out of your house now? Or are you or is that always how? Yeah, that, that's I've been. That's been the last three years. I've been uh, working remotely, and it looks like that's what I'll be doing from here on out. That that's just going to be the new norm at this point. Right. That the the office is gone. So I, there's the upside is all the stolen time with my family. And then sure. the downside is just the, the the time that I would use to commute to work. I need to rebuild that back into my schedule. I was good yeah. at that at the beginning of the pandemic, just going out, taking a walk in the morning and taking one in the afternoon. But, oh, you mean like the for mental, like just you're yeah, driving just, into the office and you're in your own space and you can kind of decompress or whatever. For, for both sides. Um, when I have a day at work, if I'm, you know, you need a day, you need time to get your head around it before you are talking to your family and, you know, you're getting the kids ready, doing everything in the morning, getting ready into that day. And it was good to have separation between that time and starting your work day. So it's learning how to segment all those different pieces. It's just, um, need to be more aware of it. Yeah. And the transition, like you don't go from making breakfast to go sit down right into a meeting. And exactly. And you don't get to center yourself. And that's really interesting. Yeah. I know I'll I'll that when I do a job like out of town, even if it's a commercial, something like that, I'll usually stay an extra day and just like, you know, turn on the air conditioner, pull the sheets up, close the blackout curtains and just have a little bit. Cause otherwise I come home and it's like, honey, 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 daddy, 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 daddy. And like, you know, I'm exhausted from the job and like, nobody is good there. If I take a little bit of my own, moment and then I can hit the ground running at home. So it's really interesting to hear somebody else say that, especially in the application of working from home. Like that's well, it's it's ex- literally exactly what you're talking about when I have to travel for work and I'm coming back and you have that that moment that you're talking about that's you could catch a red eye home. There's that one last flight that you get, you could be home, you could be in your own bed. But what good are you doing? Exactly. At that point, what are you bringing home? Your the dogs are going nuts at 1 30 in the morning. Yeah. Everybody's woken up. You've disturbed everybody. Or you actually just sleep in, take a reasonable flight at a good time, and you're. I think everybody's much happier when you do that. Can you write me a note for that, by the way, <laughs> so that I have it in my, you know. If you'll reciprocate it and send it so I can show it, it, send it to my wife. Then <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> so to kind of bring it back to something you were touching upon, um, the multiple looks of this, and again, just only getting through two episodes, but there's these in the second episode, the number of palettes that you have here that you're playing with, there's kind of the, the stamp, the, the way that you shoot the house when the home, when they're all there. And then there's also the sequences that are these kind of nightmare when there's these pre this presence around them. That's in Mm -hmm. that reality. Then there's the storytelling element of it. And even within all of those, there's different styles. So, I mean, there's, in that one episode, there's the sepia tone background that's a nightmare sequence. There's these things that are very realistic that have that are playing in shadows. And then you have the two Danas sequence, which is I, I felt like that could have been its own film. That thing yeah. is amazing. Uh oh, and you know, so yeah, so it was really a lot of fun. For me, variety is like is a spice of life. And and like I always feel very fortunate with these anthologies I seem to be able to get on. Um, and even Haunting of Blind Manor, we, you know, I had a, a black and white episode. We had different locations. Um, so there was a lot of variety there as well. Uh, I just finished American Horror Stories. That was anthology. Um, so every episode's different. For me, I feel very fortunate to be able to do that because it keeps it fresh. Um, you're not really, you're not matching stuff to continuity that you might've shot months ago, which can be, you know, tedious and, and somewhat um, challenging, you know, like, the seasons change and now there's leaves on the trees and there wasn't and just all kinds of little details that you don't think about with continuity that make it really hard to keep it, you know, um, consistent throughout a whole season. Um, so it was really fun to, to have all this, these different looks. Uh, we did a, a lot through lighting um, and a lot through lensing. Like I carried different lenses for um, and set the tone for the other cinematographers, Michael Fignori and then Corey Robson, who I've worked with a bunch Um and the idea was that we would keep it fairly consistent um, lensing for the A story. And that's the, the story of the, the young people, you know, in the hospice convalescing or I guess they're convalescing. They're sort of waiting to die in a certain sense. Yeah. Um, and um, so that was fairly consistent, um, absolutely consistent with the camera language and the camera um, setup. Like we use the Zeiss Supreme lenses. But then, uh, you know, the candy shop was opened up for uh, all the B stories, because not only did they have to be completely different look than the A story that runs through the season, 
but every episode has a new B story. And it was really challenging to figure out ways to not, you know, overlap or to, cause I think it was important that the viewer knew that it was, um, was a, a fantasy or at least a story that was being told. Um, and then, um, and not have them overlap because oftentimes the storyteller was the main character of the, of the story. As you'll see, if you get a chance to dig through the rest of the season. Um, so, and it was really fun because we, we had the license to, you know, like when Mike and I were talking about, I was like, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? I'm like, let's push the envelope. Like, let's make this really as stylized and as edgy as possible with, with all those things. I think the writing supports it. Um, I think some of these young actors really came to the table and, um, the two Danas one, Ruth. Oh, she, they both crushed that and are playing something so wildly different than what they're doing in the other parts. Like that made me, um, reevaluate what I thought of that actress that it's, Oh no, she's, we're operating on a whole different level. So she's the real deal. Well, and, um, it was a bit of a discovery. So she, this was her first acting gig. Um, and Mike kind of discovered her. She was like, a, um, I could not, I could be using the wrong term, but she was, you know, one of the first influencers. Um, <clears throat> and she had a big following on YouTube and she actually is an amputee um, in real life. So for her to play the two Danas and stuff like that, she had to play as if she wasn't. And so that was um, challenging wow. for her. And she just every day worked her tail off, never complained. It was really refreshing to see a young person um, who didn't have any acting experience, really embrace it and grow so much right in front of the camera and right in front of us, you know, and, and it was awe-inspiring, to be honest with you. And I think she nailed it all the way through the season. And um, Mike has had um, luck with sort of discovering people or, or bringing people back, you know, with Heather Langenkamp for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, he just has a, an interesting sixth sense about it. Uh, but the Ruth Cobb story is amazing to me, and I'm really excited to see what she does next. Um, and she came over from England by or from Ireland by herself and um, just really and, and, and thought through some physical hardship. You know, I mean, there were some times that she was hurting and um, didn't say a peep, you know, and it was up to us to kind of see it and be like, OK, why don't we just sit down here and give her a break or she can use her wheelchair in this scene or whatever it yeah. was. Uh, but she is an amazing find. And I think she just crushed the two Danas. Um, and it was really a lot of fun, like. You know, I'm always trying to push the envelope, but checking into him, like, oh, is that too much flair? And Mike's like, no, it's great, more flair, you know? And I'm like, yeah. And it's really fun because, you know, I came up in a time when if there was lens flare, you got fired. And nowadays I'm just trying to make <laughs> lens flares and trying to, you know, excuse my French, fuck it up as much as we can. Yeah. We're all using pretty much the same camera sensors. We used to use different film stocks and process it differently. And now everything is sort of along the same line. So as much as we can, Put our own stamp on it or change it um and we do that a lot with using older glass with character and shining lights down i mean i, I carry a flashlight with me on set all the time and i'm just like trying to like get something going and you know always hoping the editor editor uses that part too i'm like use that fire part you know and um so it was a lot of fun really um trying to make these episodes all look completely different and i think we got there for sure i agree 100 and it's something that if you're watching it, you're not thinking about it in that sense, though. It's not something that's drawing attention to itself because it's something that's absolutely supporting what's going on in that moment. It's not here's a camera move. Here's a style that we're doing it for the sake of style. It does feel like it is furthering the narrative every time. And, um, you know, even something when you get a little there's this amazing thing that the the show that has a moment um, right at the end of the two Dana story um, when that comes out and they have the, you know, kind of the end of the story and the uh -huh. one of the people responds to it like oh my god you were just telling us more about yourself and this thing and we know you so much better and as an audience member that's what you're thinking and then the show kind of sticks the middle finger back at the audience for having that revelation about it and for getting it right there and it's just this little kind of nod in a moment that just it floored me man i was so happy with that moment it's so good to hear because i have not many people have seen seen the 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 show that yeah so you know it's They've held it back for releasing it for almost a year um, since we finished. Oh, and wow. So it's really good to hear just people's reaction to it, you know, and 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 also it kind of jogs my memory, too. It's like, oh, yeah, because I haven't seen it in quite some time. Um, and, you know, putting all those pieces together. And, I, you know, I also think that sometimes shows and movies are, are like wine or cheese. Like, you know, the more it sits and the more that you kind of get distance from it, you can have a way more objective perspective on it you know then it's like oh yeah i shot that yesterday yeah yeah it's okay it's cool and then you know oh i see something in the background i hate 
where like, if I don't see it for a while, I watch it. I don't even see that thing in the background anymore. And I'm more engrossed in the story. And I like, I like it when that happens to me as a viewer, you know, like it's hard. Cause I, I oftentimes watch things from a technical standpoint and um, I've gotten better as I've gotten older, where I try to watch it once for the in- entertainment and then go back and watch, you know, even if it's a reference thing. Cause like we were talking about earlier, people are always referencing stuff like, you know, like that shot in this. And of course I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I'm like, what shot is what, what is that? You know, like, <laughs> I got to look it up and, um, and um, it's hard to watch stuff sometimes without looking at the technical part. So I really try to train myself to do that and then go and to enjoy it and then go back and look at, pick it apart. Well, and that's why I'm, I'm glad that I only made it two episodes in um, before speaking to you, because I actually want to take my time with this one. Uh, this is one that I want to, I, it's just my age that comes through when I'm really enjoying something, even though everything's accessible, I can watch all of this. I kind of want to just watch one of these a week and sit with it for a little while and come back to it and actually spend more time in this world than just getting through it all in one night. And then two months from now saying, what happened to that thing again? Right. And yeah, I, I, I did that with Midnight Mass also, where I, would, I just wanted to spend time in that world. Well, Midnight Mass is is so complicated and there's so many layers in, in, in the acting and the writing. And, you know, I mean, as a recovering Catholic myself, there's so much. Um, Same here. Yeah, so much subtext and so much meaning and so much like, you know, I mean, growing up in in a Catholic household, like it's that just and I got I was fortunate enough to work a bit on Midnight Mass. Um, so many things just brought up so many memories from my childhood and and from my experience in the church, which is I think different for everybody and. Um, and I think we all have different perspectives of it. And, and uh, some of it was pretty heavy and you yeah. know, that, that shows pretty heavy. And I think it's um, important to, to sit with it too. And, um, and there's my point being is there's a lot of layers in the midnight club as well. Um, especially in the a story, which while we were shooting it, I, I guess I was so excited by the B story stuff. I didn't always pay attention to the character development and some of the subtext in the, in the A story. And now that I have some distance from it, I really realize how, how poignant it is and how um, kind of sad it is too. Sometimes, you know, there's some really, there's some tear jerking stuff in there. I I'm not surprised by that at all. And that's why I'm not there yet, but I know that's, I had a feeling that's where this is heading. Um, and so, something like midnight mass where I grew up in a small town in Georgia and it was that element of it, the, um, the way that outsiders were treated and mm-hmm. the people that were viewed as interlopers, that kind of thing was the thing that connected with me. And just anybody that was slightly different, there was just, they were immediately ostracized and you could feel that pressure of a small community and, and the religious aspect of it, it was, I think you could take that film or that show rather and make it about anything you could find a way into that where it's deeply relatable even if it's not the religious element that connects with you mm. and that's the same thing i can feel in midnight club is that even though this is about a very specific group of kids and that there's this the b story as you say is going to be the candy that gets people in the door mm. to some degree like look they're going to have this fun turn in this thing and i'm looking forward to that every episode where they get to get weird and then I know that a story is going to be heading in a direction that's just going to kick my ass, and I can feel that coming. So yeah, well, hopefully it, it, it works out that way because I think that's how it was designed, you know. And it, it all stems largely from you know Christopher Pike's books, yeah. you know, which I think is really cool because um, I didn't read them growing up. Neither did I, and so I was brought, you know, learned about this whole thing and and what um, and how many people were actually fans and were touched by his books as as a kid, you know, and. Um, um, it was really, it's always fun to learn new stuff. And, you know, I think learning is, is the, is the coolest part about being alive. And I didn't realize that when, you know, when I was young, uh, probably not till college. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and, and now like, um, and I try to impart that to my kid, you know, and she just looks like me, I'm crazy. I'm like, learning is the coolest thing. You never have to stop. You get to keep learning and learning. And that's, what's fun. I think about the film business is we're learning about new equipment. And then we learn new stories that have been around forever. Cause we get engrossed in them as, as we try to tell them visually and, um, and so there's always new stuff and I'd hate to compare it to something as important as like medicine or whatever, but it's a practice. Like storytelling is a practice. I, I, I honestly, I would compare it to that. And I, I, if you look at the human history, uh, the oral tradition, that is how we were able to progress. That's how we move forward. If you look, it's just, this is how we were able to get to where we are. It was through storytelling. It's this something about, <laughs> The way humans are hardwired, where if we tell you to do something, 
it's not going to necessarily mm. resonate with you. But if we take it and we tell it through, it's like the Mike Nichols uh, school of directing, where he would just tell a story about something in his life. And you tell you approach it that way. And then the people go, oh, okay, I get my head around that. I understand what I'm supposed to do with this information. Wow. Parenting so, notes. Keep them coming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think... We don't, don't want think... to, we don't want to be beat on the head with stuff. We want to learn it on our own. And the best way to, to absorb it, I think, is right, is, is to hear a story about somebody else and not about you. Like, um, and, and, and in the oral traditions, when you're saying that, that, that makes me wonder of how much telephone comes into play through our history, you know, and like how much things change and become more oh, interesting stories and how, you know, accurate they are. And, um, and then also made me think about all these cultures that relied on that, that have been kind of wiped out the Hawaiian culture, some of the, you know, Polynesians and the South Pacific and these people that didn't have written languages so much, yeah. or that at least the Christianity kind of, you know, tried to whitewash. And so a lot of their story, you know, American native, native, what do you call it now? Native Americans um, or first nations, they call them up in Canada, which I really like. They were all traditionally, you know, oral stories and not written down. And, and the Christian world has tried to whitewash all that stuff. So a lot of stuff disappeared, which makes me sad. I always wanted to do a, um, and I think somebody did it. Um, I have a big affinity for for the Polynesian culture and have been fortunate to spend some time there. And they have so many cool, like um, haunted stories with like the night marchers in Hawaii and really? all these ghosts and and the um, the Menihuni and all these stories that just, it's so much fodder for genre TV or filmmaking that, um, I always thought it'd be really fun to tap into that and make a whole series of like, you know, it could be kind of, you know, YA and, and be like Nancy Drew and these kids are in Hawaii, like the Brady Bunch when they find their tiki and, you know, you can make it fun and light too, but you could also yeah. make it super creepy. It's interesting. I've never heard of that before. I need to look into that. Look up the bit. Night Marchers alone. The Night Marchers? Okay. Yeah. I'm literally stopping a podcast to write something down right now because <laughs> I, I want to actually find out more about yeah, this. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so, like, there used to be these guards that would walk the island and protect it during King Kamehameha's um, era. And um, people have built houses in those paths now. So, there's all kinds of stories. And I have close friends that have related the story to. They'll wake up in the middle of the night and there's like a big giant Hawaiian warrior sitting on their chest and they can't breathe and um and it's been documented a lot so it's really interesting look into it it's really fun i will i love that um but it's the the idea of what you're talking about it's that it's that joseph campbell thing where all these stories from all these different cultures they're all getting to this innate human thing that we have there's all these similarities that we have we're telling all these very similar stories and we have this this different lore but if the fundamental the thing that you boil it down to that kernel of truth uh, that it since of these stories are very similar. Um, and there's just something really remarkable about that. And it makes, when you find out these other stories and you find it, it's very similar to a story that you have in Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism. And it's just, there's a universal thing that we see all these differences, but really what we should be seeing are these similarities between each other. And oh, that goes so for the storytelling. Yeah. Well, I think just in life, that would make us more apt to bond and to support one another and really you know, exemplify that we aren't that different, really. And it makes me want to ask you, like, what do you think those similarities are? Like, is it, you know, fear of the unknown? Is it um, fear yeah. of inside your own he head? All those things? Like, what? It, the two big fears I think that we all have, if I, you know, just kind of going off the cuff here, um, it's that something could come into the things that you value, that there's, that there's something from the outside world that could cause you harm be it nature, your fellow man, whatever it is, there's something that could harm your family, the things that you're there to protect, um, your tribe, your community, mm. your country, your world. And so it's when it's on a very personal, small level, I think the fear is more close. It's closer for people. And when it starts to get up to that community, city, state, country level, it gets more abstract and we don't see the commonality. We just see the fear. You know, so if I think about my neighbors on either side of my house here, I have personal relationships with them. I have no fear of them, but there could be nice. elements of them that if I took it into an abstract and say, well, this guy on this side, he's a staunch Republican. That's something that I'm really scared of now. So I don't know that I would like these people ever, but I lived next to a guy who's, he's pretty, he's a decent human. He's a good guy. I can see right. that in his heart. We have very different opinions about things, but there's that. And so that that's one side. The, uh, and the protection element of it that I think is the fear of the unknown is what that really breaks down to. And then I think the fear of the known 
is also something that's universal where it's the world for whatever reason, isn't what it appears to be. Mm. The, 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 the children that you have, there's something going on inside them that you don't see that your love is blinding you. And you don't see that the call is coming from inside the house thing, that it's your spouse, that it's those things. I think that it's the external and the internal, that your own mind is turning on itself. I guess yeah, so I would have to say, what, what do you think? That's, that's the part that scares me the most is, is um, what humans are capable of and, um, and how they can put a certain facade. You know, we're watching Dahmer now, and, and that's like a perfect example of somebody can appear to be perfectly normal, but there's demons inside them in, in all kinds of different ways. And um, and so they, they, you know, they're unpredictable and it makes you start to like want to pull back the curtain and everywhere and, and look at it because I kind of came up just happy-go-lucky. Everyone's great. Everyone's great. And, and you know, really, um, most people are. Uh, yeah. But inside, I think we all have a potential of being really, really nasty. And, you know, I mean, some of our politics have shown that. I think some of the um, global politics and the world has shown that, you know, yep. of course, in, in contrast with all the amazing giving people who do so much to support each other. But we're not afraid of that. <laughs> no. No, of course not. But there's, that's there's... what we're talking about is being of like all this universal fear, you know, and I think that's... Um, something that just made me ask you, like, what do you think that is? And, and I think you're right. hundred percent. And there's like one side note that I think is something that's the important takeaway from those Dahmer type stories is the serial killers are from a very specific generation. And it's the generation of people that came back from world war II, their children, that it's mm-hmm. all those people that came back that had exposure to this. They had the depression, they had world war II. Um, they, had, they had, yeah. And the way that they raised their children and the way that society tra- treated people that were different outsiders, they created this world. We have very different issues today, but the serial killer thing is not what it once was. It's mm. a very specific window of time when you had all of those names that we all know. And it's something about like Jack the Ripper or, um, um, you know, I guess there's other things that people were like that, like um, I'm thinking Western stuff, um, but um, like Ed, Ed, Ed Gein would be a little bit early for something like that, I guess. But it's it's when the, those kinds of patterns, I think, are important to pay attention to. So that when we look at it in a society, we need to see not ignore those kinds of elements. If we see commonality, that maybe it's something we should pay attention to and that maybe there is something that happened there that we can do better than what happened there, that people might get annoyed with me uh, or think I'm a really bad parent because I tend to be a little bit close to my kids that I do want them, Mm. that I'm very honest with them, that I try to be forthright about things, but I'm also never going to their young side now. So I'm not really sure, but if anyone, if either of them happened to be gay or trans or anything like that, they full support, nothing but love. That's all there would be there. And Dahmer's generation, that wasn't the case. The world was much harder for guys like that. And so what would his life have been if he could have found like a BDSM organization to be, I have no idea. Right. Outlet for that or for self-discovery instead of them trying to suppress it and fight internally. And yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, as a parent, like being a parent has changed me so much. And I I find myself always um, thinking about, you know, like, and maybe over analyzing my kid and, you know, just because I want to make sure, like I said, I don't miss any of those markers. I don't miss any, you know, sign that there's something amiss. I'm not thinking she'd be a serial killer, but something of unhappiness that she could carry the rest of her life. You know I mean? Cause that's stuff that we're learning now that, you know, people carry trauma for a long time and they never get over. And I think there's a huge push for awareness and healing and all that kind of things. And, and I see it happening more and more. I and mean, maybe it's because Instagram and it might be my oh. algorithm that I look at, you know, but <laughs> no, it's, it's well, all of the social media element, that's something neither one of us had to deal with um, no. growing up when we were, when you were in middle school, high school, college, you didn't, if you had a situation that you didn't like home was a sanctuary that you could come into. Hopefully if you had a supporting, loving home and you could not pay attention to all the shit that you would hear at school. Now it's there, it's in your face. It's either direct or it's on your phone. And that's just a whole different level of stress that I can't even imagine. No. And they're finding that people are addicted to it. Like they, they have to get that dopamine rush by looking at all this stuff and looking at, at, you know, the information and um, yeah, we didn't, I think that's, um, we're totally sidetracking. Sorry, we're way off, man. I'm I'm fine with it though. Cause it all is really, it's, it's, it's what fuels a lot of these genre 
stories, right, is, is some of these things that we initially started talking about was fear and, and where it comes from and how it affects us all. And um, ultimately, I think that's what filmmakers are trying to tap into when they're when they're making genre material. Um, so it's, I guess it really isn't that far off in terms of the conversation. No, 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 no. It's there. Yeah. You tied that together nicely. Well done. But I'm so excited for people to start seeing this. I want to hear the conversations that are inspired by Midnight Club. Cause I think that he, you guys have done something really special again. I shouldn't be surprised by it, but I'm continually surprised by it. And you guys have a lifetime pass with me, anything you're working on. I'm just, I'm on board. So oh, I love to hear that. No. And it was really fun to work on too. And, and working with Mike and in his camp, you know, it's, it's super creative. It's demanding to say the least. Um, but you know, it's interesting because his material is also is always really different. And, um, you know, I think people easily find, um, a recipe for success and they stay in that lane. But, um, I don't see that way working with Mike and his producing team. They're all over the map in terms of inspiring stories and the execution of them are always, you know, top notch. And so it's a great to be part of that stuff. And, um, you know, like I'm still amazed at the traction that hush gets. Oh, it, a friend, friend of mine, I just saw, they posted on Twitter. They were rewatching it for the fourth time. So it's, there's so much content. The fact that anybody wants to rewatch anything is amazing. And I, yeah, right? you've done, you've done, that's a classic one. I, I, I honestly think that's one that people rare to make a mark in stream. Today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. So earlier today, when I went into Bookman's, I was thinking about the conversation I was having earlier today. And I just wanted to check out a movie that maybe was a genre film, but had a little bit more on its mind. Something that was a horror film, maybe something that had a political or social commentary underneath it. And when I walked into Bookman's, I happened to come across the 4K edition of Candyman, uh, the one that Scream Factory put out earlier this year, and it's a phenomenal set. I'm really looking forward to watching it tonight. But today I'm joined by my son, Jacob, who had some questions about Candyman, the movie, when he was looking at uh, the Blu-ray cover, he had some questions. So let's kind of go through those right now. So Jacob, come here. Yes. Uh, what is your first question about this Candyman? Um, um, what what happens if you say your his name five times? That's a that's a good question because on the bottom of the Blu-ray case it says we dare you to say his name five times. So if you look in a mirror in the movie and you say Candyman five times, Candyman will appear. He'll come there. And you'll kill. Oh, well, wow. Um, I, I didn't tell you that, but yeah, that, that's that's what would happen. Because this is make-believe. It's not a real thing that happens. This is just a story. It's just pretend. Good, good, good. So Candyman shows up in the room and then lights out. So do you have any other questions about the uh, the Blu-ray case here that you're looking at? Um, why is there a bee right there? Okay, that's a good question. So the bee is there because Candyman... Uh, well, what do you think? Well, if you had to... If you were going to watch this movie, if you had to think, why would there be a bee there? What do you think is going on in this picture? I think a, pin, um, a bee affected him. That's right. He, he was bitten by bees. That's right. Yep. That, that's that's why there's a bee there, because the candy man was bitten by bees. And and means, so, means he would kill the bees that did that? Well, no, not necessarily. But, so do you have any other questions about this on here? Why is he in the eye? Oh, that's Candyman. That's just a reflection. So this is this eyeball right here. It represents there's a woman who's looking in the mirror and then she can see Candyman in the mirror also. So I think that's what that's trying to portray. So I have a question for you about this movie. Do you think this is a movie that a kid should watch? No. Is this a movie that you ever think you'll watch when you're a grown up? Do you ever want to see Candyman? When you're a grown up? Okay, cool. As long as it's not too horrifying. It's not that bad. It's a lot of fun. Mom loves this movie. I love this movie. So we're going to probably watch this later tonight. How, wait, but how do you know all this stuff? How do I know all this about it? Well, because I like movies a lot. And that's why I have a movie podcast so that I can talk about movies. And why do you actually know all about what's in this movie? Because I've seen it a bunch of times. Oh. Um, the classic one, like part one? Yeah, well, there's actually, there's four Candyman movies. There's a uh, three that star Tony Todd, 
who's that guy right there. He's actually, Tony Todd is a really well-respected genre actor. I like him a lot. In fact, we're connected on Twitter and we end up talking about music a lot. So really nice guy. He's not scary at all, the guy who plays Candyman in real life. And then there was a remake that was done, or I guess it's kind of a sequel to it that was done recently, came out last year that's really, really good, or a couple years now, I guess it's, it's been out for. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. But, a new yeah, yeah. question. Why is there a Broadway deal? Well, that just makes it a little bit more horrifying. So, I think we need to get back to the interview. Why don't you uh, just go ahead and say thank you for listening to the show to the people. Thank you for, thank you for listening to the show. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Enjoy the rest of the show. So sorry. Yeah, that, that uh, I logged into the wrong account. I have two Zoom accounts and I have my uh, pro one and I have my family one and so there's the i screwed up when i was well, it's a timer that automatically it's a timer that goes off automatically so i'm so sorry about that but right, you, you were saying so um oh just the um you know the 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 longevity that this work has had that, that i've been fortunate to be a part with, with with you know with mike and with with trevor macy um and you know i think people are going to be watching this stuff for a long time and um i think it's going to touch a lot of people and be a lot of Inter, you know, very entertaining for a lot of people. I, I agree completely. And it's one of those things where you'll be able to watch these kinds of genre pieces. And I think with the best art, you learn a little bit more about yourself or you're willing to introspect and take it in and think about your worldview a little bit. I mean, you know, if you look at um, The Haunting of Hill House, that ending, it, when I was so, when I heard that it was based around Six Feet Under, I wasn't surprised because that I've never seen a since six feet under a finale that made me cry openly, just weeping like a, yeah. Right. And I've never had that before. And I've never had that in the middle of something that had that many scares that I'm looking at those, that imagery and I'm just weeping while I'm seeing it. I, it killed me. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm on board for life. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. It's uh now I'm thinking about Six Feet Under. And I actually just shot a film, a really small the, movie, um, in that house that they used. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. In the mortuary home? or um, it was They used the exterior for it, and we actually did the thing in, in Los Angeles. It's a what movie, was the name uh, of the brood? I can't, I can't remember the name of that family. I feel like I should know that. I watched that whole yeah. damn series, and now I can't remember it's been, it. It's been a few years. <laughs> it's been a minute. It's been, I was watching that one as it was happening. So Right, right. Um, no, that's interesting. And... and um, um, yeah, it was a it was a really um, challenging experience, and it was sort of that one of those kind of situations where you got a lot of rope to to do whatever you wanted to do, um, as long as it worked and as long as it was planned and executed properly. You know, episodics are interesting. It's not like a feature. You you're pretty much driven by the clock and by the schedule and the days, and so you're trying to do, you know, trying to make some really cool stuff, but you know, you also have to be cognizant of the time it takes. So it's about planning, making good decisions and executing as, as precisely as you can. And always things present themselves, whether it's weather, whether it's an actor. Sometimes I find that actors want to put their own spin on things. Of course. And so that's time consuming to discuss and change. It's one of the lessons I learned a while back was, you know, we would plan something. I'd lay 100 feet of dolly track. The actor's going to walk here and go up to the window and the actor comes. They rehearse. They go, you know, my character would never do that. And so I've kind of learned to just wait a little bit, see what unfolds, see what other people's inspirations are and collectively make a decision on how to move forward. And that has saved a lot of time, <laughs> a lot of heartache for me. <laughs> it's an interesting position um, to be in because as a cinematographer nowadays, a lot of the job is management. You know, you come up with a concept um, well before you're shooting for the most part. And then it's managing the, those ideas and managing the approach and the schedule and the equipment and the crew. And, and it, you know, I, I was came up through all kinds of different departments. And I can remember cinematographers walking off and smoking a cigarette and be like, man, the light's not right, you know, and that just doesn't work anymore. No, it just doesn't happen. There's, there's like there's 10 other people that are plenty qualified and, um, you know, and motivated to step right in and start shooting life is too short to work with assholes. That's, uh, that's yeah. the, the, there's just, I've found in even just the eight years that I've been doing this, um, I've seen a, it feels like there's been a sea change where there has been a, it's a much more, I don't know, 
inclusive, welcoming, just kinder environment. The, the nightmares that you would hear about sets that they, they're not as commonplace, that you just assumed that it had to be chaos for anything good to be made. And that just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. No, I think there's too much at stake. Um, I also think that people don't really want to be around that. And there used to be this mad genius kind of concept where like, oh, he's so difficult because he's so talented or she's so talented that they get a hall pass for it. And in reality, um, a lot of times I have found that that's hiding insecurities to some degree. And um, really, it's a lot of fun to collaborate. And I hearken it very much to I don't get to play sports anymore because like there's no way I'm going to make a softball team on Tuesday at six. So sure. to me, that is my sport. And it's so much fun to know everybody and know their um, positions and their jobs and help everybody to achieve, you know, their best work and the best idea wins. Like I don't purport to, to know more or have a better idea than anybody else. And so I think it's way more gratifying to have that open um, collaborative environment for sure. Not, not unlike a director, you get credit for things that you may not have had anything to do with other than just offering input. You'll get credit as a DP for special effects that you maybe didn't even touch. You talk to them about where the lighting is coming from, the color palette, those kinds of things. But realistically, the actual execution of it sometimes is coming from a totally different person. But they'll say, well, it's the director of photography. It's the look. So that's yours. And just there. Oh, absolutely. And and it goes even deeper than that. Um, you know, the an amazing dolly grip can really yeah. change, you know, the, the camera language and a camera operators who can come up with really cool moves or execute them well and have input, you know, like, Hey, you know, I know we designed the shot like this. So I'm having a trouble, you know, or um, getting around this banister on the stairwell. Is it okay if we, you know, hinge this way and we use the wall to wipe it and we connect yep. it to it. Like, yes. Like, Hey, we're back on schedule. The shot's way more dynamic. And so that's the fun part is, is finding those little, those little miracles every day, all day long as a team and hopefully, you know, rejoicing together as a team too. Cause you know, it's not, I think maybe the director and the producers, they set the environment, but it's up to us as a, as a, you know, like it's like in football, the, the long snapper is just as important as the quarterback and the, Absolutely. the tight end. And it's, it's the team aspect that I think elevates everybody's work and ideas and, um, and, you know, sometimes you get pushed farther than you would if you were on your own. Like, oh, this is good enough. When somebody says, you know, I really like that idea, but it wouldn't be better if it was this way. Yeah, you're right. It would be. And like, that's just so rewarding. I can't begin to tell you. It keeps me interested in new projects and new people and um, new approaches to do things all the time. Back to what we kind of were talking about earlier, where it's a practice and you're always learning new stuff. And if you're not, then it can't, I can't imagine it being very fun or rewarding. Well, and there's these new jobs that keep popping up with their importance you know for if you look back 40 years ago it was a steady cam operator it was just somebody that could actually carry the equipment and move around with it and had idea just even had the basic knowledge of how to use the equipment then it became people that could do it with style and the people that were able to execute it and bring something of their own visual language to it and i think you're seeing that now with photography where it's just everybody started adding drone shots because well we don't have to have a helicopter anymore and all drone photography looked very similar for a little bit, but you're really starting to see incredible drone work now. I mean, it, say what you will about, you know, Michael Bay's films overall, but there's always interesting photography in them. In an ambulance, there's some wild drone photography. Yeah, thing, I just had is, this conversation with a camera operator friend of mine. And, oh, okay. Uh, was up over the building and down the other side, like five or six times in a sequence. And, you know, and... um I love moving the camera. So I'm always really excited about any new mechanisms that help do that. I think it's important for our, our, our audiences. I think they expect it. I think um, ideally the editor expects it because I think it's really cool to poetically weave shots together in a nice you know way and then stop the camera when it's time to really let the audience soak something in. Or um, to me, I try to hearken it as to like a, a ride, you know, and sometimes you have to the roller coaster and then you get yep. the zoom down and like all the variety of it is is a ride and and i i hope to achieve that in my work is to provide a fun um experience that is like a, a roller coaster ride to some degree emotionally visually um and you know i think i've come to really appreciate some of the other aspects like sound design i didn't always yeah. appreciate it I so important you know I'm, I'm all about the pictures get the boom out of the shot you know, now it's like, hey, well, oh, okay, you can get the boom out of the shot. That's probably a good. Well, but I could also help design shots and camera oh, that's angles cool. that allows the sound department to get the best sound possible because you can watch, um, you know, 
you could watch them um, right on cue. No, you could watch them. <laughs> yeah, we were watch a movie that's not shot that well if the sound's good, but you really can't watch a movie that's shot beautifully if the sound is terrible. And so, like, I've, you know, again, always hopefully learning and, and, and working together as a team so that everybody's work is elevated and you achieve something great. And, um, and you know, that's something that so moving the camera is what we're talking about. Um, yeah, it's amazing now what's available. And especially with COVID, I think that really brought a lot of things to the table where people wanted as few people on set as possible. So a lot of things were dollies with a remote head, cranes with a remote head, where you have a dolly grip in there, but you don't have a camera assistant. You don't have a, um, a, a camera operator. You don't have this. You just have one guy on set with the actors pushing the camera around and now it's remotely operated. And um, the gimbal technology is incredible out there. It's, it's nuts, you know? And um, I, I just, I find it really, really fascinating to see how things are continually evolving. And the lighting now, you know, I, I, I talk to people a lot about, we use gels and scrims and if i wanted to make a change we'd have to bring a ladder in and then now it's on an ipad we can dim the light we can change its colors i can wait till we're on the other person's side dim that person's key down and warm it up a little bit so that when we go back to the other side it's you know it's um it's changed and it just has really been super fun and the immediacy is incredible and, and the time savings um and and i think that the palette has grown so much because now we're dealing with a color wheel that has, you know, every color in the rainbow readily accessible to you. You don't have to pick a gel. Well, we only have this blue and we don't have that blue. And, um, and it's just, it's really a fun time to be a filmmaker, I think. Well, and I, I feel like you need to make sure that you have your do it on the weekends roots. Um, Cause if you look at even something that's in Dr. Sleep that I was floored by a shot that I assumed was a gimbal shot was it's where Ewan McGregor goes onto the wall mm. and it, you know, does the Flanagan 90 degree turn thing. Yep. And I assumed that was a gimbal shot, but no, it was literally, they just moved him over the wall, turned the camera and then shook it a little bit. And that was it. And it's like, that's some 1960 Star Trek stuff and it still works. Absolutely. So. I am a huge proponent of lo-fi. Like I can't tell you how many times I've been pushed down a hallway on a skateboard and it looks like a techno crane <laughs> shot or yeah. I've always say it doesn't matter what's happening behind the camera. It matters what's happening on screen. And sometimes that's the most creative shot is figuring out how to do something in a very lo-fi way on the day or, or, or oftentimes producers don't, yeah, we need to get a, you know, three axis head and, and it's like, they don't want to pay for it. And it's not in the budget. And so, all right, so how are we going to do it? Well, we're just going to get an L plate, mount the camera that way, take the take the um, sticks as far as they go, shorten one stick, and then three, two, one, boom. And we have to move. And like, I've done it quite a few times with Mike. And I think it's one of the strangest <laughs> things. And and I've taken it on to other sets with me as well. And um, it's, it's it's again, doesn't have to be like the most expensive thing. And, and um, it just has to work on screen. It's why I'm surprised that Evil Dead 2 isn't taught in film school, as this is really valuable stuff that you will actually use, as opposed to, you know, yeah. we, you have to read the William Goldman books, you have to go through that kind of stuff, I get that, but really something like that is the kind of filmmaking you need to learn and practice, and then all the other stuff you can work your way up to. Absolutely. Down and dirty, you know, time and money is the most important um, consideration, and if you can figure out a way to do it fast and cheap, you're in. <laughs> That's it. That's it, man. It really is true that that adage, you know, good, fast, cheap, pick two. And um, I think that uh, if you're creative, that's part of the creative process is figuring out how to achieve those things in a really lo-fi way. Well, yeah, it's fun. I'm so excited for whatever you got coming up next because looking through your IMDB, it's just going through some of my favorite things that I've seen in the last 15 years, as I was saying. And I hope I get to chat with you again because man, yeah. I, could, I could do this for hours with Me you too. going through your work. So Me too. You've, you've done some great stuff. So thank, thank you. you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping for a romantic comedy. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Why not? Why not? I, um, no, I'm, I'm kind of like, if I could, if I could um, curate my career, I would like to move into things that have just a little bit more action. Like I'm a huge fan of like the, John Wicks and the Born Identities and Ronin and 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 those kind of things. I also really love period. Ronin movies. is an underrated, under underrated film. I, I honestly feel like that's that's the best car chase film. 
It's one of my favorite films, and it was done before we have a lot of this technology too. Like yep. it was, I mean, you know, Italian job that was pretty cool, car chase stuff. Um, I love. I also love this movie that I reference all the time, Atomic Blonde, which I just. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Great idea. little movie. I mean, yeah, the, yeah, the stuff on the wire when she goes down from one floor to the other. I mean, just man, that's some really inventive, cool action. So absolutely, and it's like that ride. You know, it's a ride of a movie, and it's like, oh, it's over. Wow, that was fast, and you know, you didn't stop staring at the screen the whole time but that that's that was that's kind of where i would hope to go nice we'll, we'll see <laughs> that, that, that's great to hear because you don't see you don't hear that often that that people are wanting to head to that direction um because it's it's another one of those areas where the artistry is often ignored i mm. feel like where it's not recognized in the way that it needs to be that it's just there's work that is of the highest caliber that happens in action films that just oh doesn't God. get the recognition it deserves the planning and now with the safety being super paramount in terms Clearly, of everything yeah. and um and what it takes as a team to plan and choreograph and orchestrate that stuff is you know the, some of the stunt coordinators you'll see a lot of like stunt corners become directors um because it takes a really really innate knowledge and experience to to know how to shape those scenes in tiny pieces because you can't do the whole thing on one thing. So it's, it's definitely, you know, parts is parts. It's, and, and you kind of have to vision pre-visualize those and understand what works and what doesn't with the camera in concert with the, with the stunt people and the actors and what you can double with somebody, what you can't and how to shoot all that with continuity. Like it's, it's a matrix for sure. Oh yeah. And I, I'll just kind of leave it on this because it's a, I think it's something that just always sticks with me. Um, Godfather is pretty much a near perfect film. And in my estimation, the reason it's not a perfect film is because of bad stunt coordination where mm. there's, there's just a really bad fight sequence in that movie that that's clearly two feet off where the punch is thrown and the garbage right, can is thrown right. down. And it's just, it's something you look at and you just kind of giggle at at this point. And it's charming in that sense now because it's right. so off, but it's something that, yeah, you, you have to focus on those things and know what you're doing in those moments because if it doesn't land, it that really you don't want people laughing for those reasons. Well, and at the end of the day, we were we, you know now we're so much more sophisticated as viewers, I think, and it's, it's easy to forget that and, and let it go. But now we're everything's there's been so many amazing so much amazing film work that we expect the best. You know, it's really hard to see past some of those things now. You know. Well, and they knew tough. how they knew how to make a punch look like it was landing prior to that. I, I yeah, mean, that's, for sure. That's, that's the mid seventies. I mean, so this isn't the great. The Sergio Leone films alone would prove that. You know, like absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you look at the the weight that something like the oh god the you were mentioning um, Ronan, but if you go back to like the French Connection, which is rel around that same time, that yeah. stuff all works. So oh, yeah, one hundred percent. So no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Well, awesome. I got I got at least twenty no. million years of this. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Good. So do I. So I'm hoping we get to cross paths again, James. I hope so too. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for taking the time, man. I, I really do appreciate it. Anytime. And if you ever need to follow up with anything, please feel free. Um, I'm happy to send you my email address or whatever. Um, See, don't do that because I, I'll take you up on that, and I, I will oh. ask random questions that I will be watching this and be like, wait a minute. How did this happen? So, and, oh, I love it. I, I love it. Um, what's your what's your email address? I'll send you an email. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope.
always crack.